Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Has Media Podcast. I'm your host, Harry O'Brien. And what this podcast basically is, is so a bit about myself. I'm a 21-year-old business student from Cork living in Dublin, Ireland, and I have questions. So I find cool people who can answer those questions and I ask those questions. So literally every question I ask is because I want to ask it. Yeah, so I think I'm thinking of joining the army. So I decided to get on to Cahill Berry for this episode. Cahill Berry is a TD, joined the army as an officer, then applied for special forces, which is really hard, and he got in. Then he realized that the special forces unit in Ireland had no doctor. So he studied medicine for five years and got a medicine degree. He was the head of medicine in the Irish army. Then he, he kind of realized that most of the problems in the army, he kept trying to fix the organization, but most of them have to be fixed from outside of the army. So he ran for TD. And he got it, so now he's a TD. I really enjoyed talking to him. It was a very information-dense meeting. It was only 20 minutes. None of those long bullshit answers that some people give. So yeah, hope you enjoyed. And we're live. So when you're applying for the defense, for the special forces, for the rangers, it's really important to know like your why, because obviously you're going to be questioning it when you're in there. Uh, what was your why for applying for the rangers? It's a great question, Harry. Um, I guess the main reason is if you're going to commit to a particular career or a particular profession there's no point in going in half-heartedly so look, the ranger wing is the the best place to be in the defense forces so if you're going to commit your life to a particular line of work you may as well be as good as you can possibly be and try and advance yourself as good as possibly you could be as well so that's really the, the focused uh the, the, i suppose the, the main reason why why i wanted to join okay and uh, 15% of people who apply for a selection actually make it through. Uh, what do they all have in common? What sets them apart? I guess that they wanted more than anything else. And that's really it. And really what the selection course is about, it's a test of motivation. That's all. So if you're motivated, uh, you'll find a way and you'll pass. Um, but if you're not motivated or if you're weakly motivated, um, it's not going to happen for you, basically. Because any time you join the course... Uh, multiple times during the course, you have to ask yourself, you know, what am I doing here? Uh, am I crazy? But if you have the answer to that question, basically, then, then you'll, you'll see yourself through. So, I mean, that's the, the common denominator if you're looking for one. It's a, a motivation. And people can be motivated in different ways. Like, I mean, I'm not saying uh, someone who passed the selection course isn't motivated, but they're not motivated enough to pass the selection course. And that's the, that's the key point. Okay. Actually, by the way, I don't think this is going to take longer than half an hour. I'm just realizing now. Um, how often do rangers spend on deployment? I suppose it depends on the deployment. Uh, so off-island, basically uh, across the world, generally it's a four to six month, month period. So they are working in the jungles or in the deserts around the world. And they also do close protection work then in the Middle East and in the Western Balkans as well. So it's very, very specific uh, to the mission that they're deployed on. They can do close protection work for a couple of weeks as well or working with the embassies abroad. So it very much varies. Um, and how, like, how often, like, how often would you spend on deployment as opposed to being at home in the barracks in Dakara? They're constantly deployed, and even if you're, even if you're not deployed uh, beyond Ireland, I mean, you're constantly working in Ireland, or you're on a training course in Ireland, basically away from home. So it's it's full on all the time. It's a very very busy profession. It's the busiest place in the defence force to be. But that's what. Makes, the, makes it so adventurous as well. You know, you're looking at a, the top one to two percent of, of military personnel are serving in, in the unit at any one time. And it's a great atmosphere. And like in any business, if if you're trying to 
um, if you assemble the top one or two percent of your organization and you put them in under one roof or, or in this case you know the, the one compound in the cura and um, you can imagine the the atmosphere and the sense of motivation and, and the quality attitude that's there you know that's that's why the range being so successful yeah. and would you say most of their time is on deployment like or well, I suppose it depends on how you deploy, how you define deployment. Um, okay. So deployment overseas, maybe once every year, they'll be deployed there. It could be for a few weeks or it could be for a, a few months. Um, and then constantly in Ireland, then either in operations or training. So we just see you don't get to spend a whole lot of time inside the compound uh, in the car, but um, it, it's constant operations, whether it's uh, on island or, or beyond thereafter. And when you are in the Curra, you have to be, is it within an hour at all times of the Curra camp? Yeah, so you have to live within an hour of the Curra camp. That's the norm. And there's a reason for that. It's just a response time that uh, the unit is on one hour's notice to move. So you need to be able to get yourself uh, back to the, to the army within one hour. So we're trying to, obviously, there's a bit of an issue with, with military accommodation at the moment. There was loads of accommodation in the past, but because half the military barracks around the country were closed in the last 20 years, we're still suffering now as a result. So there needs to be a lot of investment and a lot of money put into uh, military accommodation, particularly the Corps, so that the range of personnel and, and the conventional troops, well, they can live on base uh, within the, the perimeter of, of the Curry camp so they can deploy at, at a minute's notice rather than driving 100 kilometers basically before they can get to the army. So that's one of the issues I'm focused on at the moment. Uh, is that happening? How's that progressing? Well, the, the Land Development Agency has just gone through the, the doll today, actually. Um, so it'll probably be voted on maybe next week. And that's really about getting additional funds uh, in from a collaborative point of view into different uh, county councils. So uh, I would see no reason why the Land Development Agency, for instance, couldn't partner with the Department of Defence and provide additional funding to sort out the specific military housing and accommodation uh, issue. And that's something I'd be certainly advocating for. Would you be optimistic of that happening in the next couple of years? Um, I'd be realistic of it. There's a 1.25 billion basically available to the land development agency from Ireland's strategic investment fund. Plus, they have a, a possibility of a bar 1.25 billion on top of that. So, you have two and a half billion euro there, really. And uh, I think the case for military accommodation is compelling. A lot of troops, because the salary isn't great, and they're on social housing lists. So, I think it makes sense basically to build military houses and military families on, on military land. And you said there that. When you're not um, off somewhere else, you have to be within an hour of the Curra camp. So I mean, like holidays, you, can you even take a holiday when you're a ranger? Uh, of course you can, yeah. So basically you just put in for leave and uh, you get permission from the planning officer. So there's no problem at all. I, I think, um, you know, as a general rule, um, the, the commanding officer is very uh, flexible and that wouldn't be, a, it wouldn't be an issue for a lot of people. But if you're living in Donegal, for instance, and you want to join the arrangement for five or six years, most people would move down to County Kildare, basically. Or if you were living in Kerry and Cork and passed the selection course, most people would move themselves if they were single or their families to, to the general Kildare area, basically, to be in, in the vicinity. So it's not massively strict on a daily basis, but just from a, an overall perspective. And it's really, it's a, it's a logistics issue, really. It's not really practical to expect someone to, to live in uh, Donegal and uh, to work in the car. So... Not a big issue. Most people just move down and uh, settle in, in Kildare for a few years and then move back home after they've finished their, their assignment. Yeah. So for rangers now and um, for officers, are they able to get accommodation in the Curra or do they have to get it privately? There's very little accommodation left. 
and you could get a single room uh, or maybe you're sharing a room you know i think most people would, would try and live uh, outside the camp so you know when, when they have a bit of downtime that they're off the the military base basically inside newbridge or in kildare town and they're getting on their lives and um, so to answer your question if you really need one you could probably get one but it's probably preferable that you have a, a small bit of a, a civilian influence in your life as well okay fair um, there's a bit of a weird one. Is there opportunities to learn languages through the Defence Forces? Yeah, very much so. And um, so basically there's a language scheme. And uh, again, we just pushed some of the, the Ranger personnel uh, through Galway, actually, NUI Galway at the time. They did a part-time diploma in, in French, for instance. We've had Alliance Francais down to the compound to teach French because French is very important for Africa. And we've had a couple of people doing Arabic as well, basically. So if you have English, if you have Arabic, and if you have French, you'll do pretty well in, in most countries uh, in the world uh, from, where, from where our troops are deployed. Interesting. When you were studying medicine, were you also working? Yeah, so, so basically for the first three years, I had a degree in science before I did a degree in medicine. So the first three years were pretty much revision. And the last two years, I took a career break. Uh, so I came off the payroll for the last two years because uh, the medical course was five years long. And then through my internship, then uh, obviously took a year's leave of absence as well to finish that out, basically. So hopefully that's, that answers your question. Jeez, yeah, that been, so you were a full-time student for two years? Yeah, it was great. Well, two academic years or, or three academic years, really. As you know, it's not, a, it's not a full calendar year. It's really only seven months out of 12 months. So I came back to Defence Force for the summers then and for Christmas and for the, for the recesses. Yeah, and um, when you when you realized you need you were to become you wanted to become or you needed to become a TT was that a sudden thing? How did that come about? So just a question: Did I want to become a TD? Is it like when you like how did you realize that you needed to run for for TD? Uh, I, I guess there was a lot of long-standing issues in defence forces that are very very solvable, and uh, you can only solve so much internally in an organisation. And if you're being pushed back constantly, um, it's, it's time then to, you know, use a, a different route or a different pathway to get to the same endpoint, basically. That was it. We tried to change things within. We, I retired then and uh, I suppose did a bit of a, some media campaigning, which was very successful. But then really, even when President Higgins came out and said that something needs to be done about military pay and it was still nothing done, then you kind of realise at that stage that something must be done. And that's... That's the reason why the military has been so poorly uh, paid and treated uh, for the last number of decades, because there's a perception out there among uh, public representatives or politicians that, you know, the army's vote isn't really worth, you know, courting. And, and I think in the last 12 months, we've proven that's not the case. That there's a, a massive military constituency out there um, who felt very, very aggrieved in relation to how they were treated. And I guess in a way, in as humble a way as possible, I'm probably the living proof of that. And so anytime I walk into the doll chamber now, people say that, oh, yeah, he's the army guy. There's still a problem in the army. I wonder how that's uh, coming along. And uh, so that's basically it. You mentioned there that the Ranger Wing is like the top one, one to 2% of an organization. And like, you can obviously imagine how great that is. Have you ever seen like another, something like the Ranger Wing, that kind of top 1% of an organization in civvy world? Well, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I've been to medical school and you deal with very, very smart people there. Uh, they're from a particular cohort in society who've been 
very privileged in relation to the education they've received and they're benefiting from all the hard work of their parents and all the sacrifice their parents have done, you know? So, I mean, if you go to medical school or if you work in a hospital or you work in, in surgery, you're dealing with a very select bunch of people who are really at the top of their game. And it's the exact same principle. I mean, if, you, if you're a professional sports athlete, if you're a professional soldier, if you're a professional doctor or a healthcare worker, you, you, you really are, and you need to be really, really focused and really, really at the top of your game. So I, I'm been, I've been very fortunate to interact with high-performance teams uh, all my life. And, and I think that's probably a good way to go, that if you're in a team, have a look around and make sure it's a high-performance one, because that's where, you're, that's where you're going to do most of your learning and more, most of your contribution as well. Can you walk me through the process of like, once you'd realized you needed to become a TD, like putting together the team, applying for it, and actually canvassing for those couple of weeks? Yeah, well, it's something we hadn't massively planned, really, because uh, the election was called, I think it was a Tuesday, the 14th of January, if I, if I recall. It was unexpected at the time. And uh, so we weren't expecting it per se. So what we did was we had a chat that evening and we decided whether it was worth doing or not. We decided that it was worth doing, that we had a good chance of, of being competitive. So then we got our team together. And once you get your team together, all the problems just melt away. If you choose wisely, there's no issues. Um, but if you choose poorly and you have poor team members together, then you'd be chasing your tail for, for a few weeks. So we basically, we just got a team together. Uh, we got some money together. Uh, we made some posters made some leaflets and we started knocking on doors and really it is that simple. So if people are saying, you know, oh, I could never be a TD, I won't get backing from a party, et cetera, et cetera, that's not required in any shape or form. We were completely independent, completely political novice with no money, no posters, no leaflets. But in three weeks, we completely turned it around and, uh, and we're a TD now. And I think it's probably a lesson for everybody that, you know, be careful what you wish for because good things happen to people, you know? So dream big dreams. And if there's another election happening, it must happen within the next four years. And that's a general election. There's local elections in the next three and a quarter years. So if you're one of those people who are interested, I won't say in a career of politics, but a, a career of service, you know, um, it can certainly be done. And I'd be very happy to take phone calls if anyone wants some tips or anything like that. But uh, it, it goes back to the range wing selection course. If you want to pass, you will pass. And if you want to be elected, then you'll be elected. It's, it's a question of motivation. And if you want it badly enough, you'll do whatever it takes for as long as it takes. And you said we, we made a team. Who's the we? Well, it's, life is all about teams, isn't it? There's very few eyes around because um, it's like everything. Even when I'm in the, the dull chamber myself, I never feel like it's just me. I'm just the tip of the iceberg. You only see 10% of, of, of the team the other 90% are back in the constituency in Newbridge or Port Tarrington doing all the research, doing all the prep, answering all the emails. So again, while I might be the, the public face of the team, there's certainly a lot more going on beneath the surface. And I'm always conscious of that. So we is a very, very important word. And who are those people on your team? So basically, when you get elected, um, you get to hire people, which is great. So the, the Leinster House, the House of the Rockets, they, they pay your staff. And we were very fortunate. We had 60 applicants for, for four part-time jobs, really, which is massive. And uh, so we really picked the, the cream of the crop from that point of view. And we got some wonderful people. And so we have two based in Port Arrington, two based uh, in Newbridge. So two are civilians and two are ex-military. 
And we also have some people looking after our media and a bit of research as well. So there's, a, there's seven of us in total. And it's great because we have a good mix between people in Dublin and, and people there in the constituency on the ground. You'll also know about the independent commission to review the defence forces. That's excluded the Department of Defence. Are you optimistic that, that that commission will make a report or whatever and that will lead to good changes within the defence forces? Well, I'm very optimistic it'll come up with a very good report. The question is always about implementation. And I'm not convinced it's going to be fully implemented. And there's two things that need to happen for it to be implemented. Number one, there needs to be an implementation body. So uh, we've, we've a great habit in this country and perhaps across the world as well of coming up with these wonderful reports that sit on shelves and gather dust. So number one, there needs to be an implementation body. And secondly, it needs to be resourced. So basically, there needs to be a, a ring-fenced uh, budget in the next budget in October it's coming through only six months time for the implementation of the commission if that happens I'd be much more hopeful so we have an independent implementation body plus the funds to match and then anything is possible but if you're if you're missing both of those two com components or even one of them then implementation isn't going to happen but we will have a, a great report anyway one way or the other the report is the easy bit it's the uh, implementation is where the snags come on and that implementation that would be at the earliest, it will be starting like, like two years from now. And as I didn't quite get your question there. Would that implementation be starting like at its earliest two years from now? Uh, no, I, I would say the report is going to be um, issued, probably published, I expect in December, the first week in December of this year. And I would expect implementation to happen immediately. You know, I mean, to realistically from the 1st of January and maybe the 2nd of January 2022, uh, is a realistic launch date from that perspective. I mean, don't have a report just sitting around. Publish it and start implementation immediately. Uh, I mean, the, the Defence Forces have been waiting so long for, for modernisation uh, and progress, and I don't see why they should wait any longer. And um, in general, are you optimistic about the future of the Defence Forces? I'm always optimistic, particularly when you look at uh, the quality of people we have on board. And like the Defence Forces as an organisation, it's exceptional. It's exceptional um, it's it's the it's the supporting element uh, the i mean we have all the hard stuff right the culture is right the attitude is right the atmosphere is right the skill sets are right the mindsets are right really it's the easy stuff that's letting us down that are beyond the control of, of the defense forces which is pay uh, and conditions of service and once the pay and conditions of service is sorted out it will be an exceptional organization it already is exceptional but it'll even be even more superb uh, once the pay in terms of conditions are, are nailed down. And finally, I will wrap up now a lot quicker than I thought. Um, what would you have to say to young people my age in college or in doing their leaving cert, considering going in as a soldier or as a cadet? I would say go for it. There's no better job if you're the right person for the job. But if you're the wrong person for a job, then, then, then don't even think about it, is what I would say, you know. So don't go in to give it a go. <clears throat> if you want to be a part of a, an exceptional organization, one of the best in the world, then absolutely go for it. The, the pay and terms and conditions, th that's the easy thing. And that can be solved, you know, in the next 12 months. So don't let that be a factor. Uh, get in, get quality training, meet friends for life. Like, I, the, the people I joined uh, with, on the 2nd of October, 1995, I contact them constantly. Every day, we have our own WhatsApp group. You would have friends for life, and not only friends, but the very best friends. They're your colleagues. 
they're your friends, they'll be your, your best manager, your weddings. They're, they're just brilliant people. And uh, you should certainly keep that in mind. And you said there, it's, it's, um, go for it if you're the right person. How can someone find out if they're the right person for the Defence Forces? Yeah, in a way, in a way, it's not really a job, it's a calling. And it's very hard to know. Um, but I, I knew from when I was five, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so realistically, you know, you can go to all the career talks you want, or you can go to all the, you know, you know, the exposés you want. But really, it's, it's on the inside, you know, whether it's, it's for you or not. Why did I join? I joined because I like the outdoor life. I like sport. Uh, I like teamwork. I like international travel. And, you know, I, I like the idea of, of service to your country and to your community as well. You know, And, and if you're ticking out of those boxes, um, that means you're probably curious. So I would suspect that you should, you should follow your curiosity. And that curiosity can become a, a bit of a passion. Then after that, you can take so I think most people in their heart of hearts are interested in defense force. Now. If you are, give it a go. And if uh, be elsewhere, then it's probably something. And that's not just unique to defense forces. That's in any walk of life. I think most people, you know, they kind of know where they're supposed to be. And it's great when you interact with someone professionally and they're doing exactly what they should be doing. That's a, that's a great sense of, of you know, of you know poetry and motion there, but when you come across an individual and they're not really doing what they're meant to be doing, they're supposed to be somewhere else. That's very very obvious as well. So to answer your question, I think you should be listening to the little voice inside in your 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 head or your heart saying, "Yeah, actually, this is for me." And if it's for you, then absolutely go for it. Grab it with both hands. You'll have exceptional training, exceptional colleagues, and exceptional friends for the rest of your life. Carl, thanks for sitting down with us today. No worries at all, Harry. Anytime at all. Keep in touch. Yeah. And the very best of luck. Only time. So there we have it. Kind of glitched out. Um, Petrejo Valley. You can kind of get to just what he's saying. Uh, I thought it was really cool what he said. Two things. Um, one is what he said at the very start about like, if you're going to do something, you know, be be the best at it. You know, like if you're going to go into the army, be called special forces. And that's, that's very true. And then this, the last thing he said, like, doing the thing that you 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 kind of know you should be doing even though it might not be convenient for you right now yeah like those kind of things go hand in hand like you can only really be one of the best at what you do is if you're doing something you love i think anyway so yeah that's the podcast um if you're listening to this and you have some questions you'd like to ask them like i'll probably think of some more i'll probably do this again but so if you want to send me an email at um uh, h-a-a-z media zero at gmail.com and i'll put in the notes and um, yeah man that's the story i uh, hope you enjoyed oh and um this will be on youtube as well if you want to watch it i mean if, if, i suppose you probably don't but yeah check out my youtube channel anyway i have like other good videos and stuff it's uh, has media so yeah